Thank you, Ty. Um, it's such a privilege to be on this team and to, uh, to be able to speak and to be with everyone this morning and be partnered together. Thank you, TK, again for that awesome message wherever you are. Um, so wonderful. So I want to just get right into it. I'm really just going to share some intro thoughts before Minda gets up and, uh, and really share. So if you would, just open, open up to Luke 15. And um, as you're opening up there, I just want to say during this COVID season, and uh, we're probably going to hear a lot of that phrase, but during this COVID season, I think God's done a lot of uh, things in the church that have been quite helpful. We've been able to be exposed to things that needed to shift. We've uh, had a, a release, as Ty has said, a season of release from things that actually weren't helpful. And uh, one of those things that I think is, uh, is applicable would be religiosity or religion. It is the biggest enemy of the kingdom of heaven. It is the one thing that Jesus continuously kept on kind of confronting in the Gospels, and the only thing. He didn't confront uh, sinners. He didn't confront, uh, if you understand what I mean by confront, he didn't butt heads with sinners. He actually loved sinners, and yet he confronted religion. And so uh, three things that I just want to take a look at here is, one, is that the, 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 the goal of heaven or the pursuit of heaven is fellowship, Fellowship is the pursuit of heaven. Secondly, is that restored fellowship is what heaven celebrates. A little bit of overlap between uh, this session perhaps and last session, but we're going to get very practical with this session as far as what we can actually do. And thirdly, is that fellowship is the means of restored fellowship. And again, you'll, you'll understand more, more what I mean by this, but if you'll look with me in verse 1 of Luke chapter 15, now that you're there, it says, Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him, being Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And I just want to point out, we've got this whole chapter set up to give us Jesus' response and his dealings with sinners, and more specifically, the Pharisees or the religious response to that, how he dealt with sinners and how they approached sinners. And I believe, as I just said, that in, in this season, God is delivering and, 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 and has been, I hope, has been uh, releasing another dimension of religiosity that perhaps is in all of us. Uh, we can talk about the salvation of sinners and the, and the gospel and the passion, but it's, it's ultimately uh, materialized through our actions as it was in the case with what we just read with Jesus who was receiving and eating with sinners. So that's my first question is, are we receiving or do we talk about it and hang out with Christians all day long? We've got to change that if we're really going to reflect the true pursuit of heaven. Verse 3, so he spoke this parable to them saying. I just want you to take note of that word so. This whole chapter is all an answer to that, those first two verses. That the scribes and Pharisees were complaining to Jesus. So he taught them three distinct parables. The first was, and I'm just going to kind of hit on them, is the uh, parable of the lost sheep. Where you got a shepherd, 90, uh, 100 sheep. One of them goes astray. He goes, he leaves the 99, finds the one, rejoices, puts it on his neck, gets all of his friends, rejoice with me, I found the lost sheep, right? Then we've got the parable of the lost coin. A woman has 10 coins, silver coins. She loses one, she sweeps her floor, she does what you and I would do. In fact, we probably relate more to losing a silver coin than, than sheep, right? 
I don't even understand that, if I'm honest. <laughs> like, why am I going to rejoice over 1% of my sheep? Uh, but I'm sure shepherds understand that. Coins, I get. Uh, if I lose a silver coin and most of my, uh, my, my wealth, I'm going to be turning over every bed. I'm going to be sweeping that floor. I'm going to find it, right? And when I find it, I'm going to rejoice. And this woman rejoices. She gets all of her friends and come celebrate with me. I found it. And then you've got the, the parable of the prodigal son. The younger son asks for his inheritance. He goes to a faraway country. He spoils it all and then comes back just wanting to be a servant to his father. His father slays the fatted calf and let's party, let's be merry. And the uh, older son is offended by this. So that's, these are the, all three of these parables are all speaking to that, that religious mindset and approach towards sinners, which is what God is dealing with in this, in this chapter. And, and can I say, we need to hear this and walk in it. So the first thing, fellowship is the pursuit of heaven. Can I just say Jesus received sinners? And the Greek word there means to, to uh, engage them in relationship, to allow them in, to enter into discourse with them and eats with them. And can I ask us, are we, are you and I, would the world look at our actual lifestyle and accuse us of being friends with sinners? By virtue of what we do. Part of the tragedy of the prodigal son was not just that he wasted the inheritance, it's the issue of nearness and distance. It says in verse 13, not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far-off country. It doesn't say that he just left his father. It says that he left and went to a far-off country. What's the point? Is nearness and fellowship, relationship, being with that's the point that Jesus' story is getting at. That's the heart of the Father is being with, near. That's what he's after and what his church needs to be after with regards to sinners. And then finally, the restoration of the prodigal was about nearness. If you look with me down at verse 31. And he said to him, son, this is speaking to the older son who is offended. Son, you are always with me. You remember the prodigal son got offended and said, Dad, I've, I've, I've served you. I've never, I've never done anything that this younger son has done. And yet you've never thrown a party to me. And here's the father's response is, Son, you are always with me. The father's, I mean, excuse me, the older son is, is, is looking at things in terms of what I've done and what reward I should get for it. And what he's done and what kind of non-reward or punishment he should get. And the father's perspective is fellowship. I hope we can hear that. Fellowship is the heart. It is the pursuit of heaven. It's the whole point is that the son is now back in proximity, in fellowship with me. So fellowship is the pursuit of heaven. Restored fellowship is what heaven celebrates. It's what heaven celebrates. So the, the lost, no, let's go to the lost coin. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me. Listen to that. Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of angel, uh, the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And I just want to ask us the question this morning. All of us know what that's like, to have lost something and to search all over for it. You've been there before, right? You're anxiously, you're furiously. You probably turn into praying about it. Lord, help me to find this. You said, seek and you shall find. 
you know. You, you, you anxiously look for it. And here's Jesus giving this parable to express to people who otherwise want to understand this is how heaven feels about the lost, the sinner. Oh, how many of us approach our day, if we're honest, that the lost souls who don't know Jesus, I am, a, I am looking after them that I might in some way engage them in relationships so that a bridge could be built, that the gospel could go across that bridge from me to them like a woman who's lost one of her ten coins and is searching up and down to find it. Are we preaching about it or are we actually acting on it and valuing what heaven actually celebrates? The, the lost sheep... He, he, as I said before, when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and he calls his friends and neighbors, rejoice with me. The lost coin, I mean, excuse me, the prodigal son says, but the father said to his servants when he found his son, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put on a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. This is not just about getting people into church membership or even making a doctrinal confession. This is about bringing people specifically, as wonderful things as those are, church membership, doctrinal confession, it's about bringing people into fellowship with the Father who revealed himself through Jesus in terms of family language. Jesus said he was the son. He referred to God as the father, speaking of family intimacy, which is to be the pattern upon which the church, which is birthed out of that Godhead, reflects into the earth that we are about intimacy and fellowship and connection with him and with each other, and from this place, with the world. You follow what I'm saying? I'm not talking about we become worldly. But what we're called to do will never materialize until we're engaging in fellowship with the world. So fellowship is not just the pursuit of heaven. It's not just the main thing that heaven celebrates. It is the means of restored fellowship with sinners. Can I take you back to where we started in verse 2? And we'll hand it over to Minda. It says, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's the context of this whole chapter. Is Jesus demonstrating and setting a pattern of receiving sinners and eating with them? I want to suggest, and Minda and I are feeling strongly in this season, to make our home available. And to be reaching out and to be crossing over that bridge and not waiting for people to come to church in response to our advertisements or whatever the case may be. Men to come on up. It's time to, it's time to, to lead sinners into fellowship with him, himself by practicing fellowship with sinners. This is the method, and I would say let us emerge from this season now as these restrictions are lifted, pursuing sinners like that lost coin, by pursuing relationship with them. Good. Awesome. So just to continue in that, um, thanks, Ty, for trusting us to do this in 30 minutes. You can preach for 10 minutes, Paul. My goodness. Good to know. Um, 
right guys? And from Detroit, that's good to know that it is possible. But uh, with everything that has happened in the world, as we keep saying over and over, everything we've been through in the last two years, um, I really believe that one of the things that we're seeing from that is that people are hungry for connection. Have you guys felt that? All over, even unbelievers, they're hungry to connect because that was taken away from us. We missed it, and people are more, more open. This past summer, we moved into a new neighborhood. We still live in the city of Detroit, but we moved into a new neighborhood, bought a house, and um, I feel like God's just used that in our lives, along with what we've been through in COVID, to freshly open our eyes to uh, the fact that our homes are tools uh, for the gospel. And I think as believers, it's so easy for us to hide behind service in the church. Service in the church is wonderful. It's needed. I mean, we lead a church. We know how important service in the church is. But I think we often hide behind that because it's comfortable. It doesn't stretch us in the same way. It's safer. We feel safer with service in the church, but as believers, we are called to serve to reach our neighbors, ultimately. So I want to read from, I'm going to read quite a few scriptures, so if you don't want to turn there, that's fine. You might just want to jot the reference down, but I want to read from Mark 12, verses 29 through 31, and in this passage, Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment? In verse 29, he says, the most important one is this, in verse 30, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. This is what Jesus said. And that word neighbor in the Greek in the New Testament, it means any person irrespective of nation or religion with whom we live or whom we chance to meet. That's pretty much everybody, right? Any person, irrespective of where they're from or what they believe, who lives next to us or who we happen to meet through another opportunity in life. So this might be someone actually physically in your neighborhood. It could be someone at work. It could be someone you work with remotely even. But Jesus said to us to love our neighbor. And he actually said that it was the second most important commandment. This is important And if Jesus said this, then I want to do this well. I want to do this intentionally. He said that I should love my neighbor as myself. I know how to love myself pretty well. I know what I like. I know what I don't like. I know what my needs are. I know what my desires are. I know what I'm struggling with. So I want to ask us this question practically. How are are we going to love our neighbors as we love ourselves if I don't even know my neighbor? If I don't even know what they're like, if I don't know what they like, if I don't know what they don't like, if I don't know what they're going through, if I don't know what their struggles are, how can I love them as I love myself? So what the Lord's been challenging me with is, I want you to work, Minda, to know your neighbor. And you know what I mean by work. I don't mean strive. But make it an aim to know your neighbors and what their needs are. We recently joined our neighborhood association, not because it's fun, the meetings are boring, but we want to know our neighbors. We want to have opportunity to get to know them. We've been meeting our neighbors in the street. I look for opportunities to say, hey, I'll take a loaf of banana bread because I made an extra one. I'll find out what's going on in somebody's life and start to have a conversation on purpose because I want to build this bridge. I want to know what's going on in their lives. 
and as we have opportunity to, once we've gotten to know people a little bit better, we've been little by little inviting people over into our home for dinner. And we recently had a family across the street over, and the man, Jacob, before they left, the husband, he said, you know what? He said, I've lived a lot of different places around the U.S. He said, I don't think I have ever been invited into a neighbor's home. And I just said, wow, thank you, Lord, that we got to do that. Because now there's a bridge that exists between us and Jacob. My parents are here. They're on eldership with us. And in my book, they're, they're heroes because they're in their 70s. And at a time in their life when they should be retiring and settling into somewhere comfortable, they decided to move into inner city Detroit and live in an apartment where they're the only white people. And they have deliberately loved their neighbors, gotten to know their neighbors, and they've recently started this thing that they're calling Food and Faith Nights. And it's not even a thing of Border City Church. It's their own thing that they've started, Food and Faith. And their neighbors come over, they invite them over, they share a meal together, and the neighbors know before the evening is over, my dad's going to get out the Bible and share the gospel. And they come. They come to share a meal and they come to be a part of that community. So, you know, I think we just need to think creatively for today because I believe the main way that we're going to love our neighbors today may not only be inviting them to church. We are increasingly living more and more in a post-Christian world. Post-Christian means that Christianity is no longer the dominant faith of our society but our society has gradually assumed the values, culture, and worldviews that aren't necessarily Christian. But you know what? We shouldn't be afraid of that because the light shines the brightest in the darkness. This is our time to shine. We are both set apart from the world and missionally placed in the world at the same time. I think we're pretty good at being set apart from the world, but we're not very good at being missionally placed in the world, and we need to get good at that. I think as Christians, we often feel assaulted by the world that we live in. Have you felt that? It's easy to feel that. But the people in the world are not our enemy, so we can't afford to feel assault from them. They are not our enemy. Scripture teaches us clearly who our enemy is. People are precious, like Ty taught us last night. Life is precious. People are precious. They're precious to God. They need to be precious to us. And so I want us, I feel that we need to guard against this us versus them mentality between us and the world. Anything that reinforces that us versus them mentality, cut it out of your life. The media, the things that are reinforcing that us versus them. No, we want to draw people towards us. My husband Paul loves to refer to the outreach of the believer as simply inviting people to know our Father, inviting them into family so that they can get to know our Father. That's, it's, it's inviting them into this family relationship. We should be engaging relationally with the world and practicing it until we're good at it. It's okay if it's a little awkward at first, but we need to get better at it. And as Jesus followers, we need to know that this is what he did. And that's what I love so much about this as I begin to look in scripture and see over and over, this is what Jesus did. This is how he did it. He was with people. He showed compassion. He shared meals. No, he didn't sin, but he was with them. 
In Mark 2, verses 14 through 17, this is where it says that when Jesus was walking along, it says that he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and the disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then in Luke 7, 34, Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunk. That's how much he was getting to know his neighbors. That's how much he was hanging out with them. He was with them. Jesus knew that hospitality provides a context for the gospel to be communicated in real, tangible, practical, and meaningful ways. And I believe that the grace of God is most contagious when we are hospitable, when people can get close enough to experience the grace of God. So there's a Jesus kind of hospitality that God's been opening up my eyes to. And when I say the word hospitality, I don't want you to think of old school hospitality only, like the way your grandmother was hospitable. I don't want you to only think of tea parties and doilies and, you know, all that stuff is great if you want to use that to reach people. But there's a whole kind of hospitality that we're all called to, that Jesus practiced. You can be a bad cook or not even know how to cook and still be hospitable. You can have very little money and be hospitable. You can even not have your own home, young people, and still be hospitable. Because hospitality, simply put, is invitation. TK, I'm using the word invitation, but I think I'm using it in a different way than you did. Because I am inviting people to come close to me so that the gospel, which is a declaration, can be shared. But hospitality, simply put, is an invitation to come close. That's what it is. And in the New Testament, that Greek word for hospitality has its roots in words that simply mean friend of a stranger. So hospitality is simply about welcoming people into our lives, the places we live, the places we work, the places we spend our time. Those are the places where hospitality are expressed. So some of you might be thinking that this message doesn't apply to you because maybe you don't have people to do this with, you don't live in your own space. Um, it's not limited to our homes, as I said. It can happen in a coffee shop. You can show hospitality to someone to invite them to join you in a coffee shop. Your work cafeteria where you have lunch can be a holy set-apart place where Jesus manifests through hospitality when you invite people in. Your hobbies can be a platform for hospitality. You can gather some people together in a park and say, let's fly kites or go for a run or whatever it is you do. Be hospitable and invite people in to what you're already doing. The idea is that we are welcoming in strangers to become friends and ultimately the family of God. But we have to bring them in close to do that. In the New, in the New Testament, hospitality is a trait that is required for leadership. Um, but hospitality is, is, is uh, like I'm saying, mostly, I think, in this time, needing to be used outside as a tool for reaching the lost. In Acts 2, verses 46 through 47, it says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together 
with glad and sincere hearts. And then in verse 47, it says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So I have to believe that some of those people who were eating those meals in their homes, because it says they went to the temple and in the home, I have to believe that some of those people were unbelievers. For them to be added daily to the body of believers, people were coming into the home experiencing the grace of God, and they were being saved. So hospitality is powerful. It can change people. It can heal them. It can bring joy because of the love of Jesus that is manifest through hospitality, just doing what he did. Jesus reached people through hospitality. One more scripture of Jesus in Mark 3.14. It says he appointed the 12 that they might be with him. Don't you love that? And that he might send them out to preach. The end goal was that he would send them out to preach, but first he invited them in to be with him. These were the first believers. The 12 were the first Jesus followers. When they were with him, they followed him. And I believe that when people are with us, they will become Jesus followers. But they need to be with us, and we need to invite them into that space. I recently read quite a compelling book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I don't agree with everything in the book, but it was very compelling testimony of this woman's life. Her name's Rosaria Butterfield, and she tells in the book how she came to faith in Jesus. Let me just describe in her own words who she was before she came to faith in Jesus. Her former self, she says, I was a soon-to-be tenured professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University, an out lesbian feminist, and a leader in LGBTQ rights. She said, I saw Christians as the enemy because my experiences with them believed, caused me to believe that they saw me as the enemy. She said, the Bible was a dead book to me. She had written an article in the Syracuse newspaper and a pastor of a Presbyterian church wrote her a letter in response and she said it was the kindest letter she had ever received of any kind of response that was contrary to what she'd written. The letter was so kind that she kept it in her drawer and every once in a while she'd pull it out and read it again because she couldn't believe how kind it was. So she was gonna write this book on the religious right and she needed to read the Bible because she was such an intellectual, she, she really wanted to read the Bible and understand what she was writing about and she didn't understand Greek and Hebrew so she wanted a research assistant She didn't know any Christians, but she remembered the letter that this kind pastor had written to her. So she contacted this pastor and asked, would you be my research assistant for this book I'm writing? And how many people would say, no, I'm not going to help you write, I'm not going to help the enemy write a book, right? But she said, yeah, he said, yes, I'll help you. And it started, he said, first, you got to come over to my house and have dinner with my wife and I. So she came and had dinner with them, and this is what she writes about that evening. She said, the threshold to their life was like no other. The threshold to their life brought me to the foot of the cross. Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confident script. Not that night or the years after or the hundreds of meals as other believers from the church and university walked through the door of this house as if there was no door there. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. 
This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station long before I ever walked through the doors of the church. The Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible, with the reality is that Jesus is who he says he is, and eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's edge of my choice sexual sin. Today she's married to a Presbyterian pastor, and they fiercely practice hospitality in their home, and her book is full of story after story of testimonies of the result of hospitality and the power of it. Um, and just quickly in her book, she also tells the story of a young woman named Vicki who had two small children. Their family moved into a new neighborhood. She would walk and pray with her children, and she wanted to be hospitable as she prayed for her neighbors, but she didn't know how she could do it with two little kids. She was a Sunday school teacher, and so she just decided to use what was in her hands. She knew how to do arts and crafts with kids, and she knew how to do scripture memorization to song for children. So she invited her neighbors over one morning a week to do scripture memorization to song and arts and crafts. The first time one mom came with her child, she kept doing invitations until it grew to about a group of 15 moms with their kids that would come every Tuesday morning to do scripture memorization to song. Half of these women were not even Christians, but they brought their children to learn scripture. And what happened is little by little, these women wanted to know more. And then she was able to start a discipleship group with the moms, and some of them came to know the Lord. And I just love that example because it's such a, a God just blessing the simple efforts of hospitality when we just take what is in our hands because these people identified with that mom and the gospel was being presented in a simple way. Eugene Peterson said, all theology is rooted in geography. All theology is rooted in geography. And what he means by that is that whatever, whatever what he meant by that is that all, whatever context you're in, that's where your theology is supposed to be lived out. Wherever you find yourself, your neighborhood, your campus, maybe your company is global, maybe the people that you're talking to daily, maybe even the people you ultimately relate to when they come here, you go there, is even in a different continent. That's your geography. And God will give you creative ways to live out your theology. I just want to ask us practically as we close, I want to ask us a couple questions practically. Have you ever heard that saying, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives? How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. So I can say that I want to be hospitable. I can say that I believe I'm called to do that. We can talk about it. We can say that we care about our neighbors. But until it shows up on our calendars, until it shows up in our budget, then it's not going to happen. And so as a family, we've decided to prioritize hospitality lately. We've decided to choose hospitality over luxury and extravagance at times. We've chosen to sacrifice for it even. And I want to teach my children how to be hospitable. I want it to be a part of their lives. I want to set a pattern for future generations in the church that we need to be hospitable people. Because God knows not only our lives, he's not only intimately equated with our lives, but he knows the lives of all of our neighbors. And he is longing for them. He's longing to reach them, and he wants to do it through you. He wants to do it through each one of us, and he wants to give us creative tools using hospitality to create that context that he can move in their lives by. Amen.